Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hello, welcome to the Prospect Podcast. I'm Tom Clark, and this week we'll be talking to the former mental health worker and now author Nathan Fyler about schizophrenia and making sense of the slippery categories of mental illness. First, though, I'm joined by Prospect's own Stephanie Boland to talk about the NHS, which has to pick up the pieces with mental health. Um, the NHS, I say, Stephanie, but normally it's talked about as R. NHS in political circles. Yes, there's a sense of allegiance to the NHS, particularly on the Labour side, where I know if you're having your campaign material proofread by somebody in the Labour Party, they will go through and turn the NHS to our NHS. So strong is <laughs> so many people's feeling about it. What's interesting, though, um, I was digging into some research for this podcast, and Natsen does look at opinions and feelings about the NHS year on year. And they did find that over the last year satisfaction in the NHS was down overall. So they found across 2018 satisfaction in the NHS was at 53%. Now that still sounds quite high to some of us who are used to looking at polling around confidence in political party leaders Mm. which is um, famously low at the moment but in fact that's the lowest it's been since 2007 and speaks to a moment of crisis of confidence in the health service. I mean, we do know, I think, from the published uh, data on um, waiting times, A&E waits in particular, that more hospitals are missing these things. There's more stories than there were five or six years ago about rationed drugs, both because of the new drugs that are coming on and also just because the spending squeeze has been you know, not as uh, severe as many other public services, but has been applied now for a very long time. Um, So I guess it's not surprising that people are starting to feel the pinch, that patients um, and people who know patients, which is just about everyone, are starting to see the effects of that. It's true, and there's been warnings from the National Audit Office that even with the new health service plan that was announced earlier this year, this 10-year plan for the NHS, the service remains unsustainable. I mean, there is always this debate about privatisation. One of the things Natsen found was that the fact it's free at the point of service is considered particularly valuable to lots of people. Um, but there is always going to be calls for the NHS to be to be privatised, <laughs> particularly with all of those difficulties you just listed there. It's interesting, though, that um, you know a few years ago it was the Andrew Lansley reforms and people said this is the beginning of the end, it's all going to be outsourced to these dreadful Americans who are going to come in and clean up while we're all 
lying on the bed being ill. Um, and um, actually, I think the NHS providers are doing more of the work now relative to how much is being outsourced. And certainly, um, like there's more command and control in the health service than there was. All those arguments about foundation hospitals and everything else seem a bit by the by now we're back into a rationing age it's interesting isn't it i know the um there's that lovely quote from professor stephen hawking before his death where he said it's still the fairest way to deliver health care and i think that spirit is quite strong in british society i mean there are some doctors who are who are really critical of what they think is this anachronistic model around healthcare, and and might think that you know there, there could be a fresh start around that but people in the health service often say actually talking about privatized versus state control detracts from what are the real issues which are is there enough money are people being educated is training being offered that brings in new blood to no pun intended to to help treat people in the nhs you know <laughs> are the provisions there to have a high quality health service the other thing that's changed in recent years there's always been this idea that the, the care bit of it and we'll come on to mental health, I know, later, but the care bit for the elderly um, is the sort of Cinderella bit at the edge. But as the population ages and as people end up going into um, hospitals, sometimes because there's literally no ancillary care at home and they're not in a position to look after themselves, what people call the the bed blockers, the, the idea that you can look at this as a separate Cinderella service is, is now like looking unsustainable, isn't it? In an ageing population, you need to allow people to live at home if you don't want them to live at hospital. And that bit we've always paid for a bit. Well, exactly. And um, when we did our special prospect series, How to Fix, which you can still find online, we did a podcast series around questions like this. Our social care episode got a lot of attention because it's a really important and increasingly pressing issue. How do you integrate healthcare into a community? I mean, aside from, from that, which is, I agree, the biggest question, how can you care for people at home? How can you care for people in their community? There's even things like... How do you make your cities healthier so that you don't see damage to health from from air pollution, say? How do you make places where people can walk? There's all sorts of areas where the health service intersects with the policy questions. And the um, NHS, I guess, like every other bit of the public sector now, is listening to the Conservative leadership election, where it seems that all sides have decided that we don't need to worry about the deficit anymore. Um, And thinking, hey, what's good for cuts in corporate tax if you're Jeremy Hunt or personal tax if you're Boris Johnson might be rather good for NHS staff who've had this long pay restraint period. Um, Do you think that some of the anxieties of the health service um, that we've been talking about go away quite quickly if the spending taps turn back on? I mean I don't know who do you who's your bet for health secretary in a Johnson cabinet? Well Stephanie far be it for me to speculate I would say I've got a slight hunch that that's the kind of position that Boris Johnson, who's not going to be um, overflowing with um, talented um, women at the top, and I think already has some men in in in, in, in um, mind for some of the top posts, might with that second rank want to have a woman. So um, I would consider Penny Mordaunt uh, or Andrea Leadsom, two fairly prominent um, Boris Johnson backers, as people who might get a shout. But I also wouldn't write off Matthew Hancock, who was seen as a very, um, you know, uh, moderate Tory um, uh, while he was standing under his own colours, but has since deftly swerved to Team Boris. Um, And has he only been there for a year or two, I think, might be a strong candidate to um, 
provide a bit of continuity. And digitising the health service is going to be a big topic in the next government, isn't it? But how you do that with the NHS in a way that's sustainable um, (laughs) remains to be seen. You want the one cabinet minister who's got an app in his own name. But uh, let's let's stop um, our own chit-chat there so that we can go over to your discussion, Stephanie, with uh, Nathan Filer. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theatres, May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Nathan, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. Maybe just to kick us off, tell us a little bit about your work and how you came to write this book. Yeah, so how did I come to write this book? So I've had an interest in mental health for a long time and I've um, worked in mental health for a long time. I was a a nurse. But this book really came out of... um, came out of my last book. So a few years ago I wrote a novel called The Shock of the Fool, uh, which was about a young man... Uh, grieving the loss of his brother and he became quite poorly uh, I, no- I never diagnosed him in the in the novel but um but he had the kind of thoughts and feelings that I think if they were to be diagnosed uh, would be called schizophrenia and after that book came out uh, readers started to get in touch with me uh, and share their own stories so I was receiving emails from people and they were sharing uh, true stories uh, about their own experiences of living uh, in the shadow of uh, of schizophrenia. It means very different things to different people. And these stories I sort of noticed, rarely did they, they have the sort of neatly conceived beginning, middle and an end that as a novelist I'd had the luxury to craft. They were often quite messy and, and chaotic and difficult to make sense of. But I feel like it's really important that we still try to make sense of that. I think there's a fragility to the mental health of all of us and um, and it serves us to be part of that conversation. And so that's what this book is, really. It came. I, I started to correspond with these people. I was meeting more people through my work, sort of talking about the book. 
um, and those stories that I was hearing form the uh, uh, form the heart of this book. You've already there hinted at the fact that schizophrenia as a diagnosis can be quite complex. What are some of those symptoms that might form part of this diagnosis? Sure. So, um, so I think it's important to stress that there isn't much agreement on that. Actually, there's a, a lot of debate. Uh, often quite fiercely acrimonious debate, actually, um, across the fields of psychiatry, psychology, uh, neuroscience, genetics, various uh, uh, charities and campaign groups over everything uh, from from causes, risk factors, uh, treatment, whether the, the, the whole uh, diagnosis, uh, the, the, the term is outlasted its usefulness, if it ever was useful and should be rebuilt from scratch or abandoned. So so it's all up for grabs. So, so there, isn't, there isn't an easy answer. But but at its broadest, schizophrenia is the name given to some very often very distressing, unusual thoughts, feelings uh, and behaviours of which the defining feature is something called psychosis. Not always, but mostly. And psychosis also is quite a contested term. Um, but at its broadest and most simplistic, it describes a loss of connection with reality. So psychosis isn't a disease in itself. It's not an illness in itself. It can certainly be symptomatic of disease. It's um, uh, it's a feature in most forms of dementia, for instance. Um, and it can also be something, many of us will be psychotic at certain points in our lives. It can also be something that we actively pursue. It's the, the, the desired effect of many recreational drugs. You know, I think I say in the book that if you try LSD and it doesn't radically distort your experience of lived reality, uh, then you might want to find a new dealer. Uh, but 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 interestingly, um, and and I think this is like really important. There's now lots and lots of evidence suggesting that psychosis can also be the result of uh, traumatic life experience um, of environmental pressures. Um, and in the case of uh, in the case of schizophrenia, uh, or this thing we call schizophrenia, um, this psychotic experience is often um, uh, very distressing. We'll come back in a minute to that idea of life experience and mental illness as a response to that. Just quickly, there's a very poignant moment in the book where you quote from this man who says of his symptoms, the diagnosis I want to give myself is just I have James syndrome, I have me syndrome. What are some of the perils and conversely perhaps some of the benefits around diagnosis even with a contested term like schizophrenia? Sure. So... um I think something that's not widely appreciated is that for the vast majority of what we call the mental illnesses, uh, including schizophrenia, but um, but you know the vast majority of them, uh, there there isn't um, there isn't like a brain t- a brain scan or a blood test or an- anything sort of objective like that in order to arrive uh, at the diagnosis. Rather, um, th- these are the names we give to uh, sort of clusters of uh, experiences that are often seen to group together. So I think I, I think an example I give in the in in the book is if we imagine a young child in the in the classroom, uh, a young girl in the classroom who struggles to pay attention to what the teacher is saying. Well, that same uh, young girl might also struggle to pay attention more generally. Uh, she might uh, interrupt quite often. Uh, she might fidget in her seat. Well, well, those behaviours are seen often enough that there emerges from that the mental illness of ADHD. And so it goes for virtually every other psychiatric diagnosis. So 
a, a terrified adolescent who's uh, hearing uh, distressing voices might well also have some unusual beliefs. You might think that MI5 are tracking him or his, his neighbours are plotting to, 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 to harm him. And uh, his parents might also say that he's withdrawn socially and doesn't seem interested in things anymore. And that story is seen often enough that there emerges a, a concept, a notion, an idea. And we call this idea schizophrenia. Now, the problem with this way of arriving at diagnoses is that human experiences don't really like to be put in boxes. Uh, they often have like quite blurred edges. And traditionally, psychiatry's answer to this has been to create more and more and more of these boxes. So if somebody has uh, the typical uh, thoughts that we might associate with schizophrenia, uh, but the typical feelings that we and behaviours that we might associate with bipolar, um, well, if voila, that's schizoaffective disorder. Or if somebody has a, a quality of suffering uh, that's similar to an existing diagnosis, uh, but doesn't quite meet it in terms of severity, uh, well, that's okay. They're allowed to have a medically sounding illness too. Not quite depressed, uh, that's dysthymia. Not quite bipolar, that's cyclothymia. Uh, so, so to quote the, the, the critics of this diagnostic system, uh, there's a disorder for everyone. So, so I think that is a problem. And, um, and you know, it's not an especially scientific way at arriving at, at diagnoses. I, and I think that's being acknowledged now, even by the, the, the kind of medical establishment. When I was writing this book, lots of the experts that I spoke to, um, they agreed, actually, that this, this uh, categorical system of diagnosis, so putting behaviours into these discrete boxes, um, is probably um, curtailing our own advances. It's interesting, isn't it? Because on the one hand, as you say, you risk pathologizing things which perhaps don't require the kind of intervention that what we think of as, as mental illnesses do. But equally, you do talk about diagnosis as being quite empowering for some people or allowing access to certain things needed to, to support individuals. Absolutely. And so this is, you know, I tried to be very sensitive to, to that in the book because I think for you know some people feel you know rightly for their experience that these that these uh this medical language and these diagnoses uh, have injured them uh have been really detrimental in their in their lives other people find great comfort in the language of diagnosis and 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 you're quite right that it does open the doors to to, to certain like treatments and and help and so forth um that doesn't make them scientific. There are still problems with the science behind them. Um, but, but, but yeah, it's a really complicated picture. And, and what I come back to in the book um, and where the book started is these personal stories because they're like people's pain is true. You know, people's experiences, their suffering—that's true. So I can I can give you an example. The um one of the people I speak to in the book, um I interview a, a a woman named Claire, and she'd got in touch with me after reading my first novel to share the story of her son. Uh, her son had a very difficult life. Uh, he was diagnosed with a subtype of schizophrenia called hebephrenic schizophrenia. Uh. He was medicated, he had all sorts of complications around that, and he died when he was just 19 years of age. Now, since he's died, his name is Joe, since Joe's died, 
that diagnosis, hebephrenic schizophrenia, has technically ceased to exist. It doesn't exist anymore. It never made the cut for the next sort of uh, the new iteration of what's called the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual, which is this uh, this book that has all the sort of official mental health diagnoses. So this diagnosis, this illness that he was given, which to some extent helped his mother make sense of what was going on for him, that doesn't exist anymore. But he's still dead. And that truth still exists and Claire every single day must live with that unalterable fact so 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 I think I, I find the, the the you know the sort of scientific debate around diagnosis and so forth I think it's really important it's interesting but it's also quite abstract and people's experiences are real and that's what I try and keep coming back to in the book. It goes back to what you were saying before about life experience as well doesn't it that if you can formulate a narrative as a loved one that makes sense for you it may not necessarily be a medicalized narrative it might be a different type of story and that's where you kind of get to with joe let's go back to some of the symptoms you were talking about before things like delusion and hearing voices i'm very aware that these are symptoms or types of mental illness that the big push to talk about mental illness more maybe hasn't covered as much as things like anxiety or depression which people might find less stigmatising or they may be more likely to have had a personal encounter with. Do we need to be doing more to talk about and open up discussions about forms of mental illness which are perhaps quite difficult and challenging to to have these conversations about? Yeah, I, th- I, I think so. I mean, the stigma the, the stigma conversation is, is really interesting as, as well. Um, and uh, I, th- I think you're right that uh, uh, some of these diagnoses like depression and anxiety uh, have been, uh, I- I'm sure there's of course still stigma attached to them, but um, but, but a lot of that, y- y- you know, sort of quite positive discussions around anti-stigma and so forth do, do sort of focus on, on those. But, but, but e- e- even those conversations, I think we need to interrogate them a little bit more because I, I think there's a danger that the, the, the anti-stigma uh, conversation, which essentially is, it sort of follows the same line. It's quite a kind of medical model uh, conversation, and it goes along the lines of, uh, "This is uh, my mental illness is just like a physical illness. You know, it's just like diabetes, or it's just like a, a broken leg." Um, but, but I think that that's a like a simplification, really, and I, I, I think it risks internalizing what is often um, a social problem. Um, a, a couple of the people that I speak to, um, uh, or that I quote in in in, in the book, uh, uh, say that uh, we we don't talk about um, uh, we d- we don't talk about the stigma of being uh, a woman or of being black. Uh, we talk quite rightly about sexism and racism, uh, and yet we do sort of internalise things where our where our mental health is concerned. And and that would make sense if there was lots of evidence that this was just an, a sort of medical problem in the brain. But but we know that it's a big social problem. We know that if, for example, you live in poverty, um, that you're in an unequal society living in poverty, then you're much more likely to have the kind of thoughts and feelings and behaviours that lead. Uh, that lead to these diagnoses and I think here things turn quite political because a case could be made that it serves the interests of people in positions of political power that uh, you know a young person who is uh, struggling 
to 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 pay their uh, sort of ever rising rent cost to rent a sort of multi room in a in a shared house, uh, spending two thirds of their salary from a zero hours contract with all the insecurity around that. It it may serve the interests of people in positions of political power that that person is suffering from a panic disorder, uh, something that can be neatly put inside their brain, rather than to countenance the possibility that the real sickness might be elsewhere. And 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 I think also like so today. Uh, the, the, these diagnoses, and there's been a huge sort of proliferation in diagnoses since um, uh, uh, since the the the, the, the 1980s. Um, I, th- I think today they can sometimes feel a little bit like brands with the with the the currently more popular brands such as depression and anxiety. And I need to be careful here. I don't mean popular as in desirable. Obviously, they're horrible to experience. But but popular in the sense that more, more retention and public empathy go their way. So these currently more popular brands uh, get mar- get marketed and get monetized, frankly, to a far greater extent. And you have sort of publications of huge numbers of self-help books and you have new therapies developing around them. Whereas the less marketable brands... Um, like so-called schizophrenia, like the uh, uh, personality disorders, uh, uh, the so-called personality disorders, um, uh, these get ignored, and so another inequity forms. So, so to answer your question, I think absolutely we need to focus on them as well. It's really interesting what you were saying there about the young person living in a in an insecure accommodation situation, because obviously it's very important for various reasons that scientists and therapists look at what are the causes of mental illness but in the sense whether or not your panic disorder is down to the situation you find yourself in or whether it's inherent if if you still can't make your rent neither of those are making it better <laughs> if that so as a lay person you kind of look at that and you go which one is causing the problem you know okay which one's going to treat it yeah 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 I, I i think you're absolutely right i mean you know if somebody um uh, you know, if you if 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 you went to uh if if you went to the doctor uh uh because you you, you, you know you were in pain, so you, you you know you put your you put your hand in in a in a sort of pot of boiling water and you went to the doctor and said you know my hand's really hurting, uh you know the doctor could prescribe you any number of kind of analgesics in order to take away that pain, but uh but probably a, a good first step would be to take your hand out of the boiling water, wouldn't it? So uh so so yeah, I think you know part of the way that um you know not 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 for everybody there's going to be different causes and I think it is important to stress that and it's important to stress that um, where the science is at the moment no medical professional of any persuasion can say with absolute certainty what causes an individual person to become mentally unwell we're just at the point where we can look at trends and we can look at sort of correlations but we can see like very convincing correlations within within those trends um and 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 as I as I think I've alluded to already, I think it's become increasingly clear uh, that that our life experience and traumatic life experience, uh, uh, including uh, poverty, uh, including being a you know a victim of discrimination and prejudice, um, uh, can have a hugely detrimental effect on our on our mental well being. So for podcast listeners who might be hearing this and wondering where they should go if they are seeking help or seeking resources, what would you advise? Sure. Well, you know, if if somebody's worried um, about themselves or worried about a loved one, um, then, 
you know for all the limitations of our of our health services i think we do still you know we are still very very fortunate in in this country in in many ways aren't we and i think if um if if you're worried about somebody then the first step would always be to go to your gp uh and if you're very worried about somebody uh and feel that they um you know might be uh so distressed that they that they might do something to harm themselves in in in, in some way uh, than to than than to use a and e uh they they are the uh the, the, they are probably the uh the the best ways into into those services but then i would advise people you know if they, if they are uh using mental health services to really insist upon having those conversations with the people uh who are treating them and providing care uh and and make sure uh to, to push for those options because for some people uh it may be that medication is is very helpful but for other people that medication might be quite deleterious and um and and it might be more useful for them to have talking therapies or whatever so so i think um y you know it's important that people do read up on this stuff and arm themselves with information and, and have those conversations with the health professionals. Great, Nathan, thank you so much. Thank you. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. And that's all for this week. Thanks for listening to Nathan Filer talking to Stephanie Boland there. Thanks also to Rebecca Liu who edited this week's podcast. And thanks to all of you for listening. Remember, if you did enjoy this Prospect podcast, please do leave us a rating and review, which really does help other listeners find us. Thank you very much for listening and we'll see you again next time. Goodbye. Goodbye.